This is the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast, where we bring on the experts to teach you the golden nuggets of real estate investing so you can escape the rat race and start living life on your terms. Now, here's your host, Dalen Hazel. Hello and welcome back to the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast. I hope you're having a great day. Today I sit down with Lisa Hilton and we talk all about analyzing deals. We touch on landlord-friendly states versus non-landlord-friendly states. We also talk about how to assess a deal and determine if it's right for you and a whole lot more. But first, here is our golden nugget of the day. Today's golden nugget is consider the live-in flip or the live-in rent strategy. So the live-in flip strategy means you buy a property, you fix it up while you're living in it, and then you sell it after two years for a profit. And I say two years so you can avoid all of the capital gains tax. But even if you uh, incur some capital gains tax and the market's appreciated or you've driven the value of the property through your repairs, you're going to be better off than someone who maybe just rents an apartment or just lives in their house and doesn't make those repairs. Um, You can also live in rent. So basically means you live in a property and then when you're ready to move on from that house, you rent it out. So it provides that long-term wealth rather than just that one-time paycheck of selling the property. So those are two ways that anyone really can get into investing without it being a property far out there. You know, it's in your own home. You're going to need a home anyway. So two great introductory strategies. So with that said, uh, let me introduce today's guest. Lisa is the founder of lisahilton.com and a real estate investment company that provides opportunities for entrepreneurs and business owners to invest in tax-efficient real estate investments. Lisa is also the host of the Level Up REI podcast, which airs every Tuesday. Lisa Hilton is a CPA with approximately 10 years of audit experience with PwC and four and a half years as a controller on private equity real estate funds at a Los Angeles investment firm. Her current mission is to provide podcast episodes and investment opportunities for entrepreneurs and business owners to level up their businesses and real estate investing to long-term wealth and financial freedom. So without further ado, here is episode six of the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. I'm super excited for our talk today. So other than kind of what was shared so far, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your background, how you got started specifically in real estate? Yeah, sure. So my background is accounting. So I'm a fellow CPA, um, though inactive. And I live in the city of Los Angeles, California, Um, originally from the Cayman Islands. I got started in real estate with my parents. Um, My father was a contractor. He built 14 apartment units when I was a child. And those units are still with us. Um, And during that time, after he built them, shortly thereafter, he um, was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Um, and that caused him to stop working. But because he built those apartment units, that enabled my family, myself, my mom, my two younger siblings to continue to go to school and then eventually go to college. Um, he died when I was a sophomore at university. Um, and my mom continues to take care of those apartments today. And that's her retirement. She's been retired now um, since in her early 50s. Uh, so, so yeah. And 
she lives in Cayman. So that sort of started my real estate journey. I bought my first townhouse when I was in my early 20s. I was living in Cayman and I bought it because I loved it. Um, and I quickly realized that loving a property and making sure it can cash flow uh, are two different things. <laughs> um, it broke even the first year and lost money every single year after that for a total of six years. Um, during that time, I it, when it broke even the first year, I was living in Cayman. Every year after that, I lived in Boston and I was in Boston for four years. Um, and then um, after four years in Boston, I w- came out here to L.A., uh, all of this time, I was still with PwC working as an auditor. Uh, and then my first year out here in LA, I got an email, a thousand dollar bill in the mail for AC breaking down. <laughs> and I said, okay, this property has got to go. <laughs> it's not bringing any money. And now it has thousand dollar bills. No way. Uh, it took a couple months, um, but the property sold. And I said, no more real estate. And I say that the universe has a sense of humor because a year later, I decided to leave PwC after 10 years and took a job working for Aries as a controller on private equity real estate funds. And I said, oh, <laughs> thought I was, you know, done with real estate. <laughs> Here we go. And um, a girl who was there that I knew said to me when I started, she said, Lisa, it's going to take you six months to figure out what you're doing and six months to determine whether you like it or not. And she was right. Um, in that second six months, I said, you know what? I can do this, but I'm not going to do it forever. So I'm going to need to start thinking about the next chapter. And yeah, I'll pause there. <laughs> um, I'll pause there for now. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. And I want, that's a good story. So like from the beginning, you knew how powerful real estate was because it provided that stable income for your family, even when the hardships took place. Right. Yeah. And then you probably thought, well, I can just go apply this in my own life and buy this property. But then you quickly realized that if you're not looking at the right things or if you're not prepared for those mm. expenses, it can really backfire on you. Is that correct? hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. Right. So today's show is all about analyzing deals and determining if it's the right one for you. So like that property in the Cayman Islands, maybe it wasn't the right one for you, mm-hmm. but I would argue it probably was because it eventually taught you what the right thing to do was. So I think a lot of new investors get hit with all these opportunities. Do I invest in single family, duplex, storage, or do I invest this part of town? Or And pretty soon, you know, you've analyzed all these deals and you haven't pulled the trigger. Mm-hmm. So I know I've struggled with this and I still do. So I think it'd be helpful to know, like, how do we eliminate distractions? How do we pin down our niche in real estate? So we can have the clarity of thought and the business dealings. So, I mean, let's just get into this. Uh, if, if do you have any questions or other remarks? No, you want no, to finish your definitely story? jump right in. Okay, um, perfect. Yeah, I think the first thing regarding your question: How do you like go from analyzing to making the purchase? Right. Um, I think the first thing that you need to get clear on is what brings you to the real estate game. Mm-hmm. Like, why are you here? Um, because, and someone listening might be thinking, well, what do you mean? Like, I'm just trying to invest in real estate. Yeah, I know. But like, are you trying to invest for cash flow or are you trying to invest for appreciation? Or are you trying to invest for tax benefits? 
Hmm. You know, um, these are three popular reasons why people invest. The third one can be long-term wealth as well. I think by and large, most people are investing for long-term wealth. Um, but you know, other people, the fifth one is some people might be investing because they need big cash day. Mm -hmm. So once you get clear on which of these five things are bringing you to the party, then you can start seeing, okay, what is the investment strategy that is best in alignment with these different strategies? Um, and then from there, that then helps you to then get more clear in terms of like, okay, what is it that, like, what is your criteria? Like, what are you looking for? So to make this more like substantial, I guess. So say you are someone who you're working, you're an accountant, you're working like what I was doing as a controller, right? And say you live in the Midwest, not in a city like Los Angeles, right? And you want to invest in real estate and your why is that maybe you have a family and you want to be able to spend time with your kids. Um, and you, maybe you want to be able to create a stream of income that helps them to go to college, supports them going to college or supports your retirement. So that is where you would then start looking at properties. Um, because of where you live, you can start to take a stock and say, okay, I am living in a market where it's possible to buy like a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand dollar house or duplex or triplex or fourplex. Um, and then being able to then say, okay, how much cash flow do I, do I want? Um, and being able to pull the trigger. I think that once you run your numbers, you know, I think the one of the things that from Going out there and networking with other investors, one of the th misconceptions that people generally have is they see the rent and they just think that, oh, yeah, like that's the money I'm going to get. It's like, no, not so fast. Like, where's the, ta have you estimated how much taxes you're going to pay? This is something like that I learned from my first property, even though in Cayman I didn't have taxes, but thinking about, okay, is there a strata? Like, what are the fees that I'm going to be paying? Insurance, um, property management. I did not think about property management when I bought that property. And then a year later, I, you know, I was self-managing. So a year later, when I moved to Boston to go work for four years, now I was self-managing from Boston. And like, that's why I think, yes, it's great to like be able to manage it yourself and you know everything, but it's so good that when you're analyzing that property, that your property can um, bring in enough cash flows that if you need to move, you have the ability to hire property management um, for it. And I think what I'm talking about here is more like on the residential side of analyzing properties. Um, but yeah, I can go deeper into that to the extent that you want me to. Yeah, we can and, and we will. So basically you're saying is make sure you, you know, put into play or consider all the costs that go into managing a property. Mm -hmm. So I would say to the listeners, like if you're analyzing a deal, but you're going to self-manage it yourself, so you're going to take care of the property management, I would still factor in eight to 10% for that because Eventually, if you move to Boston or away, you're going to want to have that buffer in. Otherwise, it'll be potentially negative cash flowing. Mm -hmm. So you don't want a scenario like that. So were you going to say something else? Yeah, you know, um, I think that is one of the 
that's definitely some of the key things to to think about and to look at. Um, before I moved into the syndication space, I was looking at turnkeys for the longest time. Um, and for someone who like maybe in that same scenario that I described now, instead of living in the Midwest, they live in New York or they live in LA. Like the predicament I was in is I was working and I wanted to buy a duplex or I wanted to buy a multifamily. I didn't want to buy a single family house. Um, I wanted to live in one unit and rent out the others. But everything that was around me was like 1.3 million. And when you buy it, you're going to need to put in another, I don't know, more money to fix it up, to make it better than what it was. And it was just such a tall order. Um, so that for me just didn't make sense. It was outside of my budget. It was just not something that I could do. So I, my next step was turnkeys and I looked at turnkeys in other states. Um, some of the states that I went to were Detroit, Alabama, um, to look for properties. I just couldn't pull the trigger on them because at the end of the day, um, for me, I think my earlier experience with my property, when I kept running the numbers, the margins were so low. And when I mean low, I mean like, oh, 100, 150 is what would be my cash flow after expenses. And I just felt like, ah, oh, I just didn't. I couldn't pull the trigger and that's how I ended up continuing moving on to what I do now. But yeah. Right. So you looked at some of those deals and you said, this doesn't meet my minimum criteria. So mm -hmm. I would say you must have those minimum criteria. Otherwise anything's a deal, right? Yes. <laughs> so yeah. maybe you were saying 150 a month in cash flow wasn't enough. wasn't worth all the effort. Right. So maybe your new criteria is I want to see at least 250 a month of cash flow. Correct. So what other kind of standards would you recommend a newer investor having right off the bat so that their mind isn't just scattered all over the place looking at every deal? What kind of minimum standards do they have? Yes. So the first thing I had when I was looking at you know, residential properties was I tried to apply the 1% rule as much as I could. Um, it was challenging, of course, but that was definitely my guide in terms of looking. Um, and then once I did the 1% rule and the property at least fell within that, the second thing I looked at really quickly was where was this property located? And was it in a place where there was population growth? Um, because if there was, if it was in a place where there's population growth, then I know that I'm going to potentially have the ability to get this property continue to be rented and continue to grow like in rent growth appreciation and that kind of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, so those were, once I felt that they, the property met those two criterias, then I would dig deeper. Um, but I wouldn't dig deeper unless it met those two criterias first, because okay, otherwise so you have so many properties looking at. Exactly. Exactly. Because if you don't have that criteria, you're just going to consider everything. So the first one was the 1% rule. That yeah. is a good rule of thumb, maybe not something to always abide by, but it means you want the property value. Rather, you want the monthly rent to be 1% or more of the property value. Yes. 
And yes. at least in my market, I mean, you can still cash flow if that is a 0.8%. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you want to shoot for that 1%. And then the second one was you want it to be in a respectable neighborhood where there's pride of ownership and it's not just all run down, right? Yeah, yeah. You want to see that there's population growth going on. Okay. Like that there's businesses coming in, jobs, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Right. So how does someone start digging into their market? Are you looking at it from a market hole or neighborhood by neighborhood when you talk about job growth? Yeah. And so great forth? question. Great question. So one of the things I like to do is the first thing I'll do when I get a property is I'll Google online. I'll put the city into Google and I'll put like Atlanta population growth. Because I just want to know that, or since like Cincinnati, Ohio, population growth. I just want to know that the MSA at first is by and large projecting some growth there. Um, because I know that people could live around the city and like different pockets might, you know, by and large have different things going on. So that's the first thing. If I see that, then I feel like fairly comfortable going in. Um, the next thing I'll do is as I get more and more serious about the property, I like to use citydata.com. So citydata.com. Yeah. So I'll take the zip code. I'll put it into citydata.com. I personally like to see um, the average income of that particular zip code to be at least 50,000 because that's like the average income of the United States by and large. So, and I feel that I, from my experience and from talking to many investors in this space, when you um, are in a a zip code where the income is less than 50, um, people struggle with paying their rent. And I just, I'm not trying to deal, like, I'm not trying to invest to deal with that. I, I leave it to other investors who want to deal with pulling teeth in that space. Um, so that's one of the things I look at. I look at crime, which city data can provide you with the crime rates. Um, I'll look also at the housing prices. Um, I want to look to see, okay, how do those housing, what are those housing prices and what is it that people are paying to buy a house? Like um, in terms of what their mortgage is and how that compares to rent. Um, because that helps me to see if it's a fairly healthy market from a rent perspective um, for people. So yeah, um, then I think the second thing is I like to invest in class B neighborhoods and class B properties. Once again, this goes back to the beginning of what I was saying when you need to clarify what it is that you want. Um, investing in class B and class B neighborhoods is not um, is not a mandate. It's just a personal preference. So some people are okay with going into class C and maybe even class D. Yes, as you go down into those classes, the projected returns are higher. Your ability to generate cash flow is higher, but the amount of work that you might potentially need to do is also potentially higher as well. So it's just okay. things to consider. Yeah. Yeah. And you, mentioned a lot of takeaways there. So back to the beginning, um, you looked at Google first, you typed in your city name to make sure there is a good upward trend. It It's not like Detroit where it's going downward trend, which there's still people that invest in those areas. You just have to know that up front. Second step would be go to citydata.com. I think it's city 
hyphen data.com. And then you looked at crime and population growth, household income. And mind you, this is something you have to do before you invest in a market, but you really only have to do it once because once you know your market and where the good neighborhoods are, where um, the jobs are, then you really only have to do that once. Exactly. And it's really in your mind from there on out. And then finally, um, you touched on like class A, class B, class C, class D. So can you break down what that even means and then why you only invest in class B? Yes. Great question. So class A properties are like brand new. They're new development. Um, you can typically identify a class A neighborhood, um, which is different from a class A property. Uh, a class A neighborhood would have a Whole Foods and um, Starbucks, for instance. Um, and then the class A property are the new development, brand new in terms of age. Class of B um, won't be far from like the Whole Foods and the Starbucks, but um, they're not in that neighborhood specifically. Um, and the properties are a little bit older. There, There's opportunity for some value add. So like some improvements, like maybe carpet to wood floors, um, you know, maybe changing out cabinets, maybe adding washers and dryers, maybe updating appliances, that kind of stuff. Um, class C, similar. There's the opportunity for that. You probably won't be putting washers and dryers in units. You might just have a laundry mat, for instance. Um, in terms of the, uh, the, in terms of the neighborhood, the types of, um, places that are going to be around, um, you could potentially see like a McDonald's, um, you know, maybe you might see a dollar store, you know, that kind of stuff, like, you know, an Arby's, like, those are like maybe some of the restaurants and places that you're going to see in that class C borderline class B neighborhood. Um, and class D is like, it's the hood. <laughs> um, so yeah, I definitely don't touch class D and I respect the investors that do. Um, that's their personal preference and nothing's wrong with that. So yeah. So hopefully that helps. Yeah. Um, good think, explanation there. Yeah. So why I prefer to invest in class B. I feel that class B is like the sweet spot. Um, I'm not a big class A fan, um, primarily because I, like in the beginning, well, offline, we were talking that I focus on recession resistant assets. Um, and I like assets that perform well in all seasons of the economy. Um, and generally class B is fairly insulated because you'll have class A people moving down to class B in downsizing recessions. Um, and you might have class C people moving up to class B when the economy is doing well and they're making more money in their jobs, be it in the service industry or whatever industry, um, they might be in. So that's the reason why I like to stick there. Also, the, um, value add for the class B is a little bit on the lighter side. Usually on class C, you're talking about full guts. Um, and I'm really, I'm not a big fan of doing a full gut job. I also leave that for, you know, someone else who likes that, which comes back to you being clear about how you want to play in real estate. Yeah. You mentioned a really 
interesting term recession proof. I think that's really wise of you to seek out those assets because you realized in class B, I'll always have a resident, right? Because even if there's a recession, class Ayers will come down to class B. And there's still opportunities for value add, which basically means light to medium renovations so that you can drive the value of the price up. So what is the most important thing you must assess when looking at a deal? Is it, it has to have cash flow, it has to have appreciation, or is there even one thing that suits all deals? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, You know, for me, I think that I want to say location. Hmm. I want to say location is really important. You can buy a property that you can buy a property that's in a bad location. And no matter what you do, you can improve it and you still won't get the kind of rents you need to get because it's in a bad area Mm. Um, or it's in a bad market because maybe people are leaving and there's not jobs there or there's, you know, declining population growth. Um, so I think that location is super important for people when you're thinking about putting your hard earned cash to work in real estate. You want to first make sure that you are doing it in a really good location. Um, second to that is I think it's really about running your numbers and making sure you understand, um, your expenses, like how much money is going to be coming out that you're going to need to pay out of this. Because once you have a good firm grasp of your expenses, um, then at least you know, okay, this is how much I'm going to be paying. And then looking at the rental projections, but those rental projections will be helped if you're investing in the, in a right location. Yeah. That's a good takeaway. Always look at location because you can't change it, yeah. right? And it doesn't mean you can never invest in poor locations, but maybe you instead flip there where you don't have to hold it long term. So exactly. what's the difference between investing for cash flow versus investing for appreciation? Yeah, great question. So you live in Missouri. Yes. Um, that market is notorious for cash flow. Um, and some of the other markets that are notorious for cash flow are like Alabama. I don't know too much about Missouri, but like I know a good bit about Alabama because I was looking there to buy turnkeys for a while. So that market doesn't have as much like population growth. Like when you Google, um, Montgomery, um, or Birmingham, you'll notice that on Google, Birmingham population that it's fairly flat. There isn't really much going on in terms of growth. Um, however, when you, for instance, Google Texas, for instance, Texas is a great market that has evolved and changed. So a few years, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, it was a very flat market in terms of population, not really a whole lot of growth. Um, but People invest there. You can get the 1% rule and, you know, the property's cash flowing. You could hold the property for 10 years and it's the same value, but it cash flows very well. People are paying their rent. No problem. Whereas now that market is a market that can deliver both cash flow and appreciation. Um, so in the sense that the 
increase in population and jobs has enabled that market to experience high increases in price appreciation. Um, LA is another market as well. It's a very tricky market, the one I live in, um, in the sense that this market is known for appreciation because even though there's so many people leaving, there's always so many people coming. And the market is expensive and you buy a house today and maybe next year your house is like double the price it was, you know, that you bought it last year. Um, so like it's things like that. Atlanta is another market and that's because of population growth and job growth, job growth and population growth driving the markets in the South to experience both appreciation and cash flow right now. Yeah, so if you can get in on the appreciation and cash flow, then you're set up to win big. For example, if you would have started investing in like Denver, Colorado several years ago before it got white hot now. So I want to kind of also stay on this topic, but kind of switch gears on talk about landlord friendly states and tenant friendly states. Off camera, we touched on that generally blue states politically are very tenant friendly while red states politically are generally landlord friendly. So is that something you think about each time you're analyzing a deal? Man, is this going to be tenant friendly or landlord friendly? Yeah, like so 100%. (laughs) Um, I don't invest, like I love personally living in California. Um, I think it's great. Um, I love living here. It is a blue state. I am wearing blue as well. Um, (laughs) But... I don't invest here. The rules when it comes to not only landlord, but business, it's not a business or landlord friendly state at all. Mm. Um, So what that means is you can, it's plagued with professional tenants. So people who know how to game the system and live in your place for months and months and don't pay any rent. And that's what I mean by professional tenants. And then you can't get them out and you have to go through these long processes of going to court to litigate, to get them to be removed. Um, these things are not prevalent in some of these other states like Texas, Atlanta, Alabama, Florida, um, the Carolinas. Like you just have shorter time periods to remove people who are not paying their rent. Um, and when you are an investor and you're investing, you're putting money that you've worked um, for, hard for, for many years to buy a property to provide housing to someone else. And all you're asking for in return is that person to pay their rent and take care of the investment in exchange for you providing them with housing and a good place to live. So really and truly, um, so yeah, like I just focus, those are the states that I mentioned earlier. Those are the states that I personally invest in. Um, and I do not play in these non-friendly business zones and tenant-friendly zones. No, definitely not. <laughs> they make good for flipping though, to the, for yes. all the flippers. <laughs> Absolutely. But that just speaks to you have to tailor your strategy accordingly and know what you're getting into. So what markets are best for certain types of strategies? Maybe we can just break down buy and hold, which is like keeping a rental property. That's probably best for these uh, Midwestern cash flow markets. Would you agree? 
Um, yes, but it depends on the investor. So mm. if you are an investor that has lots of money, right? And you're in a situation where you need tax benefits mm. because you might have businesses and other real estate portfolios that are kicking off lots of cash. So mm -hmm. you need to invest for long-term purposes to offset your income situation. Um, then yes, you could do the Midwest. You could also do places like LA and California because you can get the appreciation, you can get the depreciation expense and you can also get natural losses out here because chances are you're not going to cash flow and you don't need it to cash flow. So you can offset the loss that you experience in California and New York against your income from your other portfolios. Yeah, it's definitely a brilliant tax strategy. And it's something that a lot of people use on the coast. You know, they buy a house knowing that they're going to lose money each month because the rental income just cannot keep up with their payments and maintenance. But they'll use those losses coupled with depreciation mm -hmm. to basically offset a lot of their active income. Maybe they're a business owner in a mm -hmm. high-tech field. So that's great from a tax perspective. But I think by and large, most people are not in that situation. Mm -hmm. um, so what about like a a traditional person who's just trying to acquire rental properties, maybe they're doing the BRRR method, the BRRR yeah, method the that Burr. we've talked about. What kind of markets would you like to see I them invest say, in? I would say that you want to be in the Midwest and you want to be in growth states such mm -hmm. as like, you know, the red states we spoke about before, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the Florida for sure, Atlanta, the Carolinas, Tennessee, um, Alabama, Texas. Okay. Yeah. Great. Well, I also want to circle back on a topic you touched on, which was recession proofing. Yeah. Investing in uncertain times, because this is certainly an uncertain time. Markets are hotter than they have ever been in US history. Mm -hmm. So what are the things investors should ensure they're considering before investing in a deal right now? Yeah, I would say that you, couple things. The first is you want to make sure that you have, in my opinion, and this comes from me being a conservative investor. So number one, you want to make sure you have sufficient reserves, cash reserves. So that mm -hmm. way, if you buy a property and for some reason you run into a spell where you don't, you can't rent it, um, you have reserves to float the property yourself. Um, number two, I think thinking about the kind of financing that you're getting on these properties, um, you want to get by and large, people are getting like fairly, you know, good loans. You know, I guess that would be more like on the multifamily side of the house, you would be looking at financing. Um, so yeah, I would say big thing is, is cash reserves. Um, and also I would say buying in good locations. I think that it's worth it to make the sacrifice to buy in a good location because long term, you're just going to be in a, you're setting yourself up for, more success if you're investing in a market that has that population growth, job growth that I was talking about before, um, and a good neighborhood, um, at least in the next five to 10 years, it's going to pay off for you as opposed to and in a place where it's declining and you're betting on hopefully it'll come back. You're just taking a risk. 
It's speculation. And I would add, because we haven't, at least younger folks like me have not seen a recession like we saw in 2008, Mm -hmm. um, a major recession that is. So I would also add, you want to be careful with your, the amount you're leveraging, you know, make sure you have a solid 20 to 30% of equity in each property. Cause at least I know, and even the most stable markets still drop 10 to 15% in the 08. So making sure you have that nest egg in the property, because you certainly don't want to be the investor calling the investment companies, Hey, uh, I need to sell my house for pennies on the dollar to you because I was stupid and over over leveraged myself. (laughs) Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. So the last, the last portion of our show, um, cause we are running out of time here is called the triple threat. And it's the same three questions we ask each guest. So Lisa, what is the app tool or resource that has been the biggest game changer in your business? Hmm. Uh, maybe Calendly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I use that Calendly one. Calendly and, um, Zoom. Mm-hmm. We're using both those right now. Yeah. <laughs> so Calendly basically is a calendar scheduling tool that syncs with your calendar. So people can feel free to, you just send them a link and they book via that link. So you're never going to be double booked because it syncs with your existing calendar. And obviously everyone knows what zoom is now. Yes. (laughs) All right. Second question. What has been the biggest failure in the last year for you? And why do you think that happened? Yeah. So I would say my biggest failure is, well, I would say currently, like, you know, figuring out, I would say that I fail daily as I figure out ways to create a business that generates other streams of income outside of just investing in real estate. Um, and I am like, my failures is because I haven't yet figured out yet where my, my, how my value can help transform the lives of someone else. But as I continue to have conversation with people, I get clearer and clearer and hone hone in on it more and more um, in terms of how I can find like where that fits together, if that makes sense. So, yeah. Okay. So you're looking for ways to like supplement your real estate investing business that can help others basically. And that's been a challenge. Yeah. 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 So the third one is our podcast is all about helping others achieve freedom with real estate investing, whether it's financial lifestyle or otherwise. So what does freedom mean to you? Hmm. So freedom for me means the ability to do whatever I want to do and like be financially independent. So, um, make enough money to take care of at least all of my basic needs and my wants, and then being able to be in a place where I can then focus on doing the things that I really want to do in life. Like, uh, so yeah, that's a part of, that's a big part of my freedom. And that's a big part of why I do what I like. That's a big part of why I continue to invest in real estate is just being able to have the freedom to continue to grow into who I'm called to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. So the last thing, uh, it's not really a question, but you have a freebie that you give to folks, the beginner's guide to investing in real estate syndications ebook. 
And syndication is a strategy in real estate um, that we didn't talk about during this show. But can you talk about what syndication is and how people can get that ebook? Yeah, sure. So the ebook um, is, well, syndication is um, group investments where essentially people are able to purchase deals that they would be unable to do so on their own. Um, so the way they're typically structured is investors will invest alongside uh, the general partners who are putting together the deal and managing the deal. Um, and through that, they become passive investors. They receive cash flow either monthly or quarterly. Um, and whenever the deal sells, they'll then get their portion of the gains from that sale as well. So that's typically how the real estate syndications work. It can be done on all different types of assets as well. Uh, and then you can grab that book. Um, it just gives you high level overview of what I just said, you know, what real estate syndications are, how they work and a case study on an example of one of them and how they, how it works. And you can grab that as well as any information about me from my podcast, the level up REI to blogs, videos, the whole nine yards, um, at lisahilton.com forward slash ebook. Perfect. And you spell your last name H-Y-L-T-O-N. Yeah. So it's like Hilton, like the hotel, only thing with a Y. Yeah. Yeah. Well, perfect. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I think this one gives listeners some good takeaways that they can apply and get some clarity of thought and drill down on what is it they want out of real estate and the market, the asset class that is going to get them to that ultimate goal. So it's been great talking with you. And thank you for sharing your knowledge. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review. And tune in next week for the next episode.